Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American U.S. Supreme Court Justice, once said, In recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. Many of our life lessons come from how we process and interact with the people around us. For Joshua, witnessing and being intimately involved in the narratives and growth of his clients have helped him grow into the person he is. Equal parts intelligent and empathetic, listen in as Joshua, who works as a social worker, reflects on his journey in becoming a social worker. Do you want to give us a short introduction maybe about yourself and what you do? Oh yeah, sure. So I am a, a new social worker. I just started my job about four months ago. Uh, so still making a transition into this job and learning uh, a lot more about what uh, what to do, how to handle uh, the cases and stuff like that. Uh, mainly what I do, as what I've told uh, Liana and Shriva, uh, I'm in the business of change, uh, mm. changing people and as well as asking questions. And so a lot of times I'm just waiting around asking people uh, to meet me and to uh, chase them down with some uh, questions, make sure that things are safe uh, for them. Yeah, So that's mainly what I do. A uh, little short introduction, mm. I guess, uh, funny stuff. Like I have six cats. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. So when I get tired at work, coming home to a bunch of six fluffy cats, that really helps my day. These are your cats? You decided to have six? Or your family just like Mm. love cats? It's a long story, but uh, it's my family's cats. Yeah, and we share them. Oh, <laughs> you just sounded very judgmental. You decided to have six. <laughs> I am slightly okay, judgmental. <laughs> yeah, they're really good. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit of what social work is? Mm, sure. So as I've mentioned, it's the business of a change and questions. Uh, change being the component where we hope that people's lives will improve, get better. Uh, and it can go, it usually goes from really bad situations uh, like child abuse and stuff like that. And depending on the setting that you are in, you could go from the statutory side of things like child protection uh, to something a little bit more community-based like family services, which is where I'm at. Uh, it's also the business of asking questions because uh, as many of us actually find out, we don't like to share so many of these things. And uh, But the fact is, closed doors do not help with uh, people's situations. Uh, and sometimes asking questions will help us to uncover uh, these risks, as well as to keep people safe, especially children or the vulnerable, uh, like people with disabilities or elderly. Mm. Yeah. So that's mainly what I do. Uh, I ask questions, I connect them with resources, I help them uh, to see different perspectives in life, to understand some of the questions they may be going through. Uh, and yeah, I really like my job. It's, it's, it's so exciting and challenging to be solving problems. Uh, not that I solve their problems, actually. Uh, a majority of times I am waiting for them to realize the solutions uh, because if they are not... Uh, motivated then they won't change uh, mm. it's just a simple fact yeah 
So what I'm interested in knowing actually is does everybody in social work have similar job scopes or are there different categories of social work? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that social workers struggle a lot with uh, because depending on the setting, the, the scope of social work can be quite different. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, if you're in the hospital setting, uh, a lot of the work that you do is not therapeutic. It's very short-term uh, because uh, your goal is discharging the patients, ensuring that when they return back into the community, they are in a safe space. So there is some therapeutic work uh, if they are longer-term patients uh, in the hospital, uh, but because of the nature of the work, a majority of them get discharged within like a day or even uh, a week. Uh, but compared to a family service setting uh, in the community where uh, I do house visits, I, I kind of uh, make them come and see me in the long term, uh, a contract for about a year or more, uh, and we have step-down care from uh, child protection services and all sorts of other settings like the hospital, uh, we are in charge of longer-term therapeutic work. Counseling uh, is a mainstay uh, in our job scope. Uh, but generally, the skill sets are transferable. Uh, what I do when I ask questions, how I ask these questions, uh, if you're in the hospital setting, a fast-paced setting, you still have to, and you can try to ask it in uh, a similar way. But of course, again, the nature of the work demands a different skill set. Uh, yeah, there are certain questions that you would ask more often and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, so similar but also different uh, nature. And I think the ones that are vastly different are, are those that don't have the elements of like advocacy in the same way. Uh, so a, a big part of social work especially overseas social work, you do like protests, you do things like advocating for your clients in a very big and public way. Uh, in Singapore, we do it a lot more um, in, in line with the government, which is not a bad thing. Uh, it's really good sometimes. Um, and that, that helps our clients uh, quite a bit in those ways. But I think if you're in the statutory arms, like child protection, you don't get the luxury of that uh, simply because of the workload as well as the fact that you're representing the government. So again, back to where are you positioned within uh, the, the society? Uh, which organization are you part of? Uh, that kind of does determine quite a bit of the rules that you right. play. I see. That makes sense. Um, I want to go back to something that you said, which I found interesting. Um, that is, you said that you, you sort of have to wait for them to realize the solution themselves, um, which makes sense because, again, it is impossible to change someone if they don't want to be changed, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the strategies you use to sort of inspire this change in people? Like, what do you do? Hmm. That is a great question. Uh, so, actually, this week I saw a case uh, similar to that. Uh, which was helping with a child's school motivation. Now, how do you even motivate a child to go to school? Mm. Uh, what do you do to change? Who, who do you talk to and uh, what do you say when, when you meet them, right? Uh, yeah, because a child, uh, how do you help them to learn uh, that innate motivation? Uh, and that's what basically we need to do. We need to inbuild that motivation for them to go to school. Uh, but the fact remains that in Singapore, 
if you are not going to school below the age of 12, uh, compulsory education unit needs to come in. Uh, and your parents can be charged for not sending you to school. Uh, and that's something that we will have to work with, uh, informing them about the limitations. We, we, we don't get, in this case, we don't get the luxury of having them dawdle at not sending their kid to school. Uh, but at the same time, even if you put in that structure uh, to force them to go to school, the kid is not going to want to go to school after a while. And usually by secondary uh, and this happens to many of our clients uh, in their lives. They leave school. Uh, so these early school leavers uh, are very unmotivated. They get uh, labeled as people who uh, don't like school. The problem lies with them. But if you track the history, there's a long history of parents not enforcing that, being unable to enforce that. Uh, in, in, and there are many, many factors. Uh, for example, some of them want to stay home to ensure safety for their parents uh, because there's spousal abuse going on. So it is extremely complex when we talk about motivation. What do we do to untangle that? Uh, well, first, uh, just understanding the various factors and motivations uh, uh, that each individual in the family has. Uh, and that's tricky because for, for the child's motivation, for example, uh, it's regardless of whether they are motivated or not, that needs to happen. Yeah. So what do you do then? Uh, it's not as though we ignore their voice, but it's at the same time not something that we can afford to put so much weight into. Um, there seems to be a lot of limitation to be like a quote-unquote stranger in this family structure because so many hours yeah. spent yeah. within the family itself, you're not there. Yeah, right? so that, that is a great observation. Um, I would imagine that would be so difficult to be someone from the outside to try to ask for a change <laughs> because everything else about their lives is according to what they've been living for a mm. long time, right? Yeah, so um, I'm sure like social workers understand this limitation. Do you feel like it can be made up by just seeing them more often during the week? Or do you think that it's, it still depends on mm. the family itself? Yeah, I think that goes back to your ideology about uh, social services. Do you mm -hmm. think that they should be extinct uh, eventually? So meaning we work ourselves out of a job or for us to always be there. Uh, and that's a constant question because some families are really nice. You just want to be there with them and be their friends. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, uh, it is an unnatural thing for us to be part of their system. Right. We, if not for some of their problems, we would not be part of uh, mm -hmm. their family. Yeah. Uh, and we are not their family. Mm. Yeah. I, I think uh, that is sufficiently clear from the clients that are especially unwilling to meet us. Mm. Uh, but even for clients that are really nice, uh, that is also something that should be clear. We are not there to babysit them. Uh, we are there to hopefully help them to thrive. Uh, and some of them need that long-term work, uh, but most of them may not. Uh, perhaps it's also a, need, uh, a thing about our Singapore system uh, that we hope that families thrive on their own without systems involvement. For some families, this is not possible. Uh, and I give you an example like, people with disabilities, uh, 
maybe when they are younger, the parents can manage. But when mm. it comes to old age, who manages it? Yeah. If they don't have siblings or they don't have any other relatives to help, the family is relatively isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that becomes uh, something that I guess the community needs to come in. And that's yeah. where social services are mm-hmm. usually involved with these families throughout their lives. Mm. Just from you like talking about this, it seems so emotionally and mentally draining. It Do does. you agree? Of course, of course. Yeah. So do you expect this before you join social work? Were you already expecting this? Or do you not even consider it at all? Oh, definitely. I considered it. Um, on my first day in my first lecture, uh, my professor, yeah, she, she said, you know, to be a social worker, you need to be emotionally healthy. And my eyes just went wide. And I was like, okay. <laughs> that, that is what it takes, sure. Uh, but it was also really exciting to to hear about because mm. for me it was an opportunity to yeah consider how I could manage and cope better in my emotions. And it's been a journey as well. It's not just a journey for our clients, but a journey for me uh, to learn what it means uh, to grow up emotionally and mentally, and just dealing with the realities of the world. Mm-hmm. I think there's no other job that is so intimately connected with people's life stories. Perhaps maybe those that are working in like healthcare might see some aspect of that. Mm-hmm. But being in the business of asking questions and change, I, I really get that privilege to hear people's stories and kind of just be in that moment where things are changing. And that is so exciting. Uh, but of course... Uh, disclaimer, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't enjoy those <laughs> moments where things are blowing up altogether. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it is such a privilege. Mm. Such a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Yeah. 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 You do learn a lot from difficult times. So yes. it's a privilege to be able to, um, I guess, be involved, be involved in people's stories and they are growing up. Like you're part of mm. them growing up as well. So. Yes, yes. And nice. such a joy to see that. Uh, and in, in social work, uh, this is something we talk about quite often, crisis and, as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the Chinese characters for a crisis really captures that. Wei Ti. So Wei being danger, Ti mm-hmm. being opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's precisely what crisis moments are for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm here to as a social worker to catch those moments for change. So other than, okay, so other than being emotionally stable, is there anything else you think uh, makes a good social worker? Well, uh, in NUS Social Work, we talk about having a hit heart hands connection and that's the title of our introduction module. Uh, So kind of helping them to sell this, they should pay me. (laughs) But yeah, besides the heart uh, for the people, uh, and I think that's really important because if not, you're you're just what what are you doing in social work altogether, right? Uh, it's the head and the hands. You need to be willing to do, so you can't be lazy. Uh, you need to be more hardworking to your clients. That's that's just a fact. <laughs> and head, you need to be thinking much better, much clearer. Uh, if anyone in the fam- if everyone in the family is like panicking and kind of like in crisis mode, you as the social worker, that's not your job. 
you're not and that's the part where uh remembering that you're not part of the family really helps at least for me it helps me remember that uh unlike them who is in this state of feeling very, very stuck uh and feeling like there is no way out i'm not i'm not them uh, i have different resources i have people around me i have my colleagues i have community resources and yes for sure a case might be stuck in some sense but when i take a step back rework the case uh, kind of just look again at the elements that are part of it that helps me to see what needs to be done next uh, a clear assessment always leads to a clear route out and it just depends on how long it it would take uh, maybe I need to wait for something or uh, I will need to rework the case in a different way, come in from a different angle, mm-hmm. a different entry point. Yeah. So I would say it, it is it's not a job for the faint-hearted for sure, uh, but it's also for those who are looking for challenges, uh, being able to use their brains a lot more to problem solve mm-hmm. and, and think of different angles. Uh, and that's something my boss really likes to do to see 3D thinking, see from different angles about the problem. Yeah, and I think that's a large part of our job. If we were not thinking, well, we would be in the same state as our clients and that would be terrible. Right. Yeah. Um, I think the idea of being able to, not being able to, being, um, of detaching yourself from the situation, I think that's, very important because I think sometimes when we are involved in, in a situation, we feel like we are a part of it and then that blocks the way you think, like you said. And then understanding that you are outside the situation and you can help from the outside. That's an interesting yeah. perspective, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of tricky because it's not straightforwardly that way also. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it will require us to stop everything that we're doing for a moment, stop being detached mm. and get into the story, right. get into the narrative. What exactly is the client asking for? Mm. Because people are complex. Yeah. We say one thing on, one, on the surface, but there's something else deeper. And sometimes it is unconscious or sometimes it is um, unexpressed uh, or something that we have no words for. And that happens very, very often with our elderly clients. Uh, who find it difficult to have the vocabulary to express what they feel. Mm-hmm. And i give you an example. I have a client that came in asking for help to find uh, her son who abandoned her grandson with her. Uh, and she wanted to give up the care. So on the surface, it sounds like she wants to give up the care of the grand- grandchild. Uh, but the, the thing, well, what does it mean for her to take care of the grandchild? Right. Uh, well, it meant for her that you know, that maybe there's some hope her son would come back. Uh, and so giving up the care might mean that, uh, yeah, it, it draws her son back to come and take care of the, son, the grandson again. Uh, so that's why she did what she did, to say the things that she said. Uh, it wasn't so much that, but when we dug deeper, it wasn't so much that she wanted to give up the care. Yeah, so people are complex. Uh, looking beneath the surface is really important. And sometimes that takes us just listening to the stories yeah, listening and tuning in mm. so much about your world is about communication isn't it yes indeed right 
Um, and then we are actually interested to discuss um, perhaps gender biases in your your workplace. Mm. So male versus female to you, um, what are the strengths of each one of these sexes? Right. Yeah, that's such a tricky question to ask because can come across as sexist at some it, it point. It does, it does. Okay. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I do get where it's going and it's it's just a general observation. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, you know, uh, as much as we talk about like feminism and stuff like that, uh, yeah, is that something that our clients actually think about actively? That's another question to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might be in the position as middle class or upper middle class uh, individuals to think like, you know, uh, all these things about gender are really important. Oh, we need some equality and uh, equal rights. They need to work as well. But the realities on the ground are quite different. Do they have the headspace to think of such things? Maybe for some of them. Uh, but yeah, so sorry, going back to your question, uh, I, I derailed a little bit just now. Uh, I think that there are some uh, differences. Uh, the observation and, and and some facts, right, is that biologically, I think women are just hardwired to be a bit more in tune with their emotions. Of course, there are cases where, uh, yeah, I have clients who are female, but they are not in tune with their emotions, and uh, that causes a lot of issues. But that's kind of actually everyone. We need to be in tune with our emotions. So there are some level of uh, things that I observe more more of the females doing more naturally. Uh, or, or more expressively, like they are, they are more emotional in some sense, and the guys kind of just going on a very task-oriented mode. Yeah, um, but at the same time, uh, and and that's something I've been talking with my girlfriend about actually, uh, whether you know talking about sexuality issues, uh, that is something that girls are just more open to talk about because of say, uh, things like having menstruation and having a deal with your period. And, and that's something that gets talked about more often. So sexuality is something that the girls are more in line and in tune with. Uh, perhaps also feeling like patriarchy and kind of dealing with like gender violence, gender-based violence, uh, uh, sexist comments, uh, or having crude remarks directed. That's something I've observed also among my friends. Uh, to be something that girls are more aware of, more in tune of. Um, and at least in my circles, the guys are a little bit more oblivious, more task-oriented, less connected with emotions. Uh, but recently, also coming to realize that's just me in my echo chamber. There are many out there who openly talk about sexuality issues, openly uh, make jokes of, of that, uh, openly... Uh, engage in hard topics as well and are emotionally connected. Um, so it is diverse and I guess it's difficult to pinpoint, I, w- I would say at the end of the day, which, um, yeah, which gender has different things. But I would say the main ones I, I feel are quite real mm-hmm. are the task orientation and the emotional orientation. Have you yourself uh, witnessed any gender bias at work or have you experienced it yourself? Mm. Uh, definitely at work. Mm. Uh, in fact, this week I got another situation like that uh, where I transferred a case out 
because of a gender issue. So the client raised that there were some uh, issues, sexuality issues that she would be more comfortable with a female uh, worker. Uh, and we asked a little bit more questions and we figured that actually, yeah, that's something that we want to do for her. Uh, and so transferred the case out. Uh, and so that happens uh, apparently quite often for guys uh, because um, it's it's just the nature of our work. Uh, a lot of more females come uh, into the workforce. So we have a lot more female social workers. Uh, social work is still in the process of changing uh, to be one where there's more males that are involved. Um, but somehow, because of the nature of the work, the perception of what it is, like some volunteer work, something about caring and counselling, females get attracted a lot more. Uh, so I get cases that uh, I have to deal with violence a lot more or I get grabbed along to, to kind of be the safe person, the person to provide some measure of safety or balance out power within uh, a, a conversation or a counselling session. Uh, so for some reason, maybe because I'm a minority uh, there as a guy, uh, yeah, I experience and I'm a lot more aware of the gender issues uh, that come up. Yeah, so it's quite interesting. And for our clients as well, uh, a majority of those who seek help are actually uh, women, those who voluntarily seek help. Uh, it seems like women are more willing to ask for help. And uh, stats do show for suicide, for example, a majority are male. Yeah, male and older. Um, is it older? Okay, I might have mixed up the eight one, but definitely male because less likely to speak up. And then one of our latest uh, statistics with regards to like COVID-19 situation, um, yeah, it was surprising because uh, suddenly we saw an influx of men asking for help, emotional wow. help. Okay. Uh, and yeah, maybe that is also something great about our COVID situation. People coming forward to seek for help when previously things were hidden. Why? What do you think made that difference? As in, why this time? Yeah, it it could be that the usual uh, places of refuge like work mm. uh, are now limited. So a lot of times situations are diffused because you know people leave the house for work or school. Mm. But when everyone is back together, uh, these things are are, are just unsustainable anymore and starts coming to the forefront and perhaps they're confronted by it and they want to seek help. Yeah. That's a great point. Uh, but I, I'm also wondering like why exactly like the, the males are coming forward in this period as in understanding that, okay, maybe they have fewer distractions but why is it that it was difficult for them to do something for themselves before this? Hmm. So I'm not too sure, but our hypothesis is because of the work arrangements. Hmm. And it happens also for a majority of our clients that a lot of times, um, maybe the males are, the, uh, are our clients, but in the end, I only get to meet the wives. Because uh, the husbands keep saying that they are busy, they have other things to do. Uh, and that is quite true. A lot of them uh, in, in our clients' uh, household profile, what happens is the men are the breadwinners. 
So they pull long, long hours, and that is extremely tiring. Uh, so either they are really tired, they don't have the energy to come and meet us, mm-hmm. or they are meeting, they are having long hours as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, because of that, a lot of times I only meet the the women. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, uh, there are also cases where it's interesting because, uh, in, in a different sense, uh, not about. Sorry, your question initially was about um, why the men don't come forward to me. Yeah. Well, it could also be a, yeah, a perception that, you know, as a man, I don't need help. Right. So that does happen quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, right now, we've been discussing more on you know, biases against men. Mm. Um. Do you feel like there are also biases against women in this field? I mean, usually when we think of social yeah. work, we think that you know women thrive in this situation because, like what you said, um, they have um, sort of like a tendency to be uh, more in tune to feelings, and that might be helpful in family situations. Um, do you feel like there are biases against them? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um... I've actually asked my female colleague this week, mm. did they get any of such discriminations? You know, what did they feel about the gender issue? Uh, and he did say that they get less complaints, generally speaking, uh, but partially because uh, they, and she, she mentioned it also like, uh, yeah, maybe they're perceived to be more submissive, uh, less threatening. Uh, in some sense, there there's no power imbalance, or, or rather the power is usually shifted to the client anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps that balances out the power that they have as professionals. The clients see them on a more equal uh, grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, as compared to me, uh, I'm male and a professional in their lives, and I'm seen as too powerful uh, for their liking. Yeah, so gender biases against women, I guess, it, it comes out in different forms. It could be used to their advantage, just like for me, I, as a male, I could use it to my advantage to help me in situations where the power is quite, power imbalance in the relationship is quite off. Uh, and yeah, it's not necessarily a thing to have that bias. It's mm. just learning to work around and learning to work with that. Um, so far, Perth is a Singaporean thing again, right? Um, I. I haven't come across people that uh, are actively voting and seeking that kind of change for like, oh, some sort of equality and mm-hmm. uh, writing the, the, the injustice of the imbalance in gender and stuff like that. So uh, I don't know, maybe I need to think about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so far, biases against women. Hmm, are there any more examples? Let me think. Yeah. Definitely in the complaints. So a lot of mm. clients like to start attacking very personally, either to race, uh, and that comes out really often, or to uh, pinpointing their gender. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that goes like across the board, any of the professionals involved in their lives, not just social workers. So they'll be like, oh, that SSO officer, social service officer, uh, that female, uh, she's really bad. Previously, when I had a guy, he's a lot better. <laughs> And mm. stuff like that. And, and when mm. I hear that, I always feel a little bit stunned how to respond because uh, on one hand, it's their narrative, right. uh, their internal narrative of what's going on. But at the same time, you're just out because it's like, 
their gender has nothing to do with it. Just, exactly. you know, your situation is really hard to deal with. And perhaps you also need to reflect, you know. Oh, no. I, get really, I, I, I do get a little bit annoyed because like, it's like they have no insight. Yes. But mm. I also understand that some of them find it really difficult to have insight. And it's just the pattern of how they have been all this mm. while. Um, so a lot of situations you're in, it seems really, really heavy. Mm-hmm. How do you, like, can you tell us briefly, like, how do you manage this emotional burden? Hmm. Yeah, that's a constant question that we're asking ourselves. Um, so uh, this thing in social work, we always say self-care. Mm-hmm. So looking out to care for ourselves. I personally don't like that word. I'm very selfish. Something about the self alone. <laughs> I see it as getting rest. I just okay. like to use the word rest. That's mm-hmm. that's good enough. Uh, so finding that space to get away from work, mm-hmm. uh, emotionally and mentally, not just physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find keeping work life balance quite helpful. Uh, so I don't do any work, and it's a rule that I've been trying to keep. Uh, I don't do any work after six when I end my day. I don't do any work on the weekends, even if it means missing my deadlines. Uh, and an example that I look up to, my uh, supervisor, she told me that when she was in a family violence specialist center, uh, she left work at six every day. Uh, and she only worked outside of work hours if it was on additional projects. Mm. So not her main casework and counseling kind of stuff. And she found that really helpful for her mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Yeah, it, it also helps me to realize that, you know, in my work with clients, I am not the everything. It helps me actually to be more stable. Uh, so seeing the benefits that this rest has for the work that I do, for the people around me, that is vastly helpful for me to keep to these routines. Like. I see. Um, Do you feel like the industry supports men- mental health in social work like for the workers for the workers yes mm, there's been a lot more talk about that because burnout rates in Singapore uh, social work sector is quite high the turnover rate is something like yeah within two or three years people leave mm. some of it could be due to gender things mm-hmm. so you have a lot of females and they leave because of pregnancy and also in reflection of that they don't want to be the same situation as their clients who have like neglected some of their children. Uh, a lot of these stories do impact uh, us personally and people make personal choices to then leave the workforce, which is quite interesting, actually. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure of the exact statistics of the burnout rates, but uh, I do know it's quite high. Uh, and yeah, the industry has been talking about it for a very long time. Uh, but at the same time, re- recognizing that the nature of work is like that. Mm. Uh, we are always going to have a shortfall of people, a shortage of manpower. Mm. Uh, workloads are going to be crazy. But uh, yeah, uh, at least for my company, that has been something that we've been trying to work on. Mm. Uh, so a trauma-informed uh, kind of workplace. So a setting where it's safe for people to admit that they are burning out admit that things are not going well for them, uh, admit that they have mental health issues and they need help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an open culture of talking about how things have been impacting us mm-hmm. and 
that really helps because we can get to process that. Mm. Most companies will have like uh, um, some funding for their, for their workers, maybe one or two sessions to get them started. Mm-hmm. But the recommendation is that they themselves work out their own personal issues. Because at the end of the day, the tool in the toolbox uh, in dealing with our clients, the primary tool is ourselves. And, and if we take care of ourselves, we are able to take care of them. I really wish this is something that most industries prioritize. Mm, it, I mean, yeah, of course, in social work, I'm sure it's it's even more important, but I think it's something that everyone can deal with, especially now, right? With COVID and yeah. everything. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great uh, point, Shiva. I think that uh, every industry should have this. But the fact is also not every industry finds it worth to invest in something like that. Uh, and at the end of the day, people become cocks in the machine, a mm. capitalist machine, just working and slaving away. Oh, sorry, I'm going a little bit <laughs> Oh, <Marxist> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, don't report me. But, <laughs> but yeah, I kid. Uh, and it, it is true, though, uh, in terms of value for money. In, in some sense, whatever we are, the company is doing for us is an investment mm-hmm. for the work that we are doing. And uh, I think if social work was not geared towards uh, needing individual workers, we probably might not have something like this talked about as often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the nature of work demands uh, such an input, uh, and it's not going to be possible for every other workplace to do that. I think it will be great if, on the whole, Singapore pushes for that uh, uh, for the employment front, on the employment front for employers to provide some sort of mental health help. Mm. But as of now, long term, that's not going to be happening. Uh, it's a societal shift and mindset shift that needs to happen. Now. Okay. Yeah, I definitely agree. Okay, so for the final question of today, let me ask you, uh, what are the most important values that you think you will be learning from this profession and how would they eventually influence your life? Values that I'll be learning. Wow, that's a that's a big and deep question. Take your time. I haven't had time to reflect <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, immediately two things come to mind. My own values uh, and the values... Uh, that I learned. So my own values being values that I learned, uh, values that I have already and things that I learned more deeply about. I would say things like compassion are things that I've I've always had as a value uh, that I think uh, being genuine and honest to others, that's another value that I hold uh, quite a lot. But coming to social work has helped me to see what it really looks like. Uh, not just in a, oh, this is my value, I'm genuine. But and not just claiming it, basically. Mm. But truly being, sorry, pardon my pun, genuine about it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's helped me to be a lot more authentic with mm. uh, myself, more congruent within myself. And uh, that helps a lot. Yeah, because there are just parts that I wouldn't have known not for social work, not for the stories I've seen, the things I've reflected about, the questions that I've had to wrestle with, 
for example, like whether violence is correct, like you, is there any moment where it's correct? And in Singapore, for example, caning is something that to think about. Yeah. Uh, and what's the values behind uh, caning that I hold? Or should I agree or disagree that caning is to be allowed? Yeah. So stuff like that has helped me to really um, be more congruent and be more authentic uh, about who I am and, and the values that I hold and that particular value of honesty and genuineness uh, to realize what it is in the deeper sense. So that's about values I hold. Uh, values that I've learned in work. I think I'm still learning about social justice, what the form of that looks like. Uh, when, when the word social justice uh, comes to mind, uh, when we talk about that, immediately we think of like those protesters in the streets of America yeah. uh, just marching uh, and then like screaming out save the animals or uh, I mean, <laughs> sorry humans right um, black lives matter yeah stuff like that so that doesn't really happen in Singapore and uh, I'm but being exposed to that uh, thinking a lot more about that um, and even in Singapore we've had uh, instance of that uh, talking about poverty in the newspapers so I'm not sure if you remember two years ago social workers suddenly came to the forefront to uh, to to discuss about that uh, argue about that even uh, about poverty so a big big discussion because of Yu Yuyan's book uh, this is what inequality looks like yeah uh, and I'm le- still learning what, what, what does that mean for me personally not just uh, on a macro level or oh, advocacy looks like this we need to speak out or or like in my work with my clients i need to advocate for them to get certain things uh, but learning what it means for me personally and that's been a journey uh, i think for me i uh, so i'm a i'm a christian uh, I, I consider a lot of my values very very christian and social justice is a value that as a christian i hold because mm-hmm. um, god loves uh, justice right and I'm still working out what does that mean for me in my life to do justice by everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. Does that mean just keeping to the rules? Or does that mean to fight those rules when the rules seem unfair? Mm-hmm. Or, or what? And, and it's a tricky question to answer because uh, the rules exist for a reason. Yeah, and I think in, with regards to like social justice and stuff like that, yeah, it's, it's different in Singapore. Uh, it's still happening and yeah. people are still trying to make changes. Uh, some people are more extreme about it. So, uh, yeah, these are things like you see at Pink Dot uh, and events like that. Uh, but, yeah, gradually things are changing. Maybe our generation will be different. And I think, yeah, just figuring out what it means for me and how that shifts with the times is something that I've been learning from my clients and from my profession. Uh, and personally, that has impacted me in thinking harder about, you know, what do I do outside of work? Right. Yeah, because, uh, yes, social work uh, is my job, but who I am as a person stays the same, right? In and outside of the job. I'm impacted by what happens then, and uh, it continues to overflow in the, the things that I see. And right now, I'm thinking about things like, should I help those that I see on the streets, like tissue sellers and stuff like that. Uh, on one hand, me like the compassion in me is just like bleeding heart. I I I ought to 
but social justice, what would really help? You know, is this justice to for me give or not give? Right. Sometimes, perhaps I actually don't need to think so much. I, I should just do what what instinctually ma- matters, lah. Yeah, uh, and it's tricky. So I'm still thinking about that, you know, because on one hand, giving sometimes doesn't help their situation, but there are many clients who actually use that for sustenance at the same time. So yeah. a lot to think about. Yeah, a lot to think about yeah, because yeah. you could be giving, entrusting it to an organization to help you manage that, or you could be giving directly to individuals. Which again, back to is this really the best for them? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes what is seemingly the easiest way to give to someone is not the best way to help someone. Yeah, yeah. Like, I have clients who go around begging for money, mm. but what is it for? It's to feed their gambling addiction. And then, as the worker involved, I'm just like, oh no, people, please don't be stupid. Don't give them money anymore. Mm. But at the same time, you know, when you're in the moment and you're confronted with someone who is pitiful, who looks sad, you have that sympathy coming up. I would I wouldn't say empathy, but sympathy coming up. Mm. Yeah, it is hard to to deal with that aspect. Mm. And to be rational and logical uh, and compassionate uh, and doing them justice. You know, it's complex. You need that time to be involved in people's lives. So yeah. Sometimes that five minutes is all we have with that individual. And what do you do? How do you do social justice in that five minutes? Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of An Open Invitation. We know that life can feel very lonely, and we hope that through these conversations, you will be able to find some comfort in knowing that many others feel the same way. Join us next week as we delve into the thoughts of someone new. You can find us on AOIPodSG on Instagram or Twitter. That is AOIPODSG. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts.